Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. If you know what that is, then you know. But we are going to talk today. It's a little bit of an unusual episode of The Nose in the sense that before we even get to one of our regular panels, we're going to talk about somebody, talk to somebody. I'm very tired. It's been a long week. Uh, talk to somebody who is involved uh, in covering uh, television for The New York Times in a very, very important way because we've had kind of an odd sequence over the last, you know, really it was in the space of about five days uh, for kind of prestige television series ended. I mean, the two tent poles there, I think, are Succession and Ted Lasso. Barry, you're hearing a little something about Barry here, uh, and, the fa- and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel also uh, ended their runs. There are a lot of reasons for that. We'll be talking in the second segment about Succession specifically. There's sort of a way in which it kind of rents a-, a lot of space in people's minds. Uh, and then doesn't pay the rent because uh, it turns out they don't have as much cash at ATN until the Madsen deal goes through. Uh, and uh, then in the final segment, we're going to talk about White House plumbers, which is one of the things that kind of comes along in the footsteps of some of these other programs. But right now, uh, James Ponowazek is going to join us, as he sometimes do, the ch- does. He's the chief television critic for The New York Times. And James, before you and I get going, let's just take a little uh, trip down memory lane about endings of other series. This is A1 Cat. <coughs> Honey, wake up. You you won't believe the dream I just had. Mm. <laughs> but don't you want to hear about it? The second button is the key button. It literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it. It's too high. It's in no man's land. Haven't we had this conversation before? You think? I think we have. Yeah, I think we have. Sorry, we're closed. How's he been to give you any trouble? He's been sitting there ever since you left this morning, just like he does every day. World of his own. Look, I know how tough it is for you to say goodbye, so I'll say it. Whenever I see a big pair of feet or a cheesy mustache, I'll think of you. Whenever I smell month-old socks, I'll think of you. And, of course, we cut to black there. So, James, first of all, welcome back to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So it does seem like, I mean, obviously, you know, we just heard, uh, let me see if I can get them all in here. That was Newhart and Cheers and The Sopranos right at the end and Seinfeld and St. Elsewhere and MASH. We've had big endings in the past. It did, did seem like crammed into a pretty tight little space here at the end of May. Perhaps um, not, perhaps not yeah. unconnected to the deadline for Emmy submissions. Uh, we I had, we had a, say, yes. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I- I, I think it, it is a bit of an artifact of the fact that uh, uh, the end of May is is uh, the end of Emmy season now. And, and so uh, in the same way that, you know, you have this 
rush of Oscar movies at the end of December, uh, you tend to get more and more TV events crammed around there now. So, so yeah, you, uh, you, you get that yeah. you get that avalanche. And I think this also might have been not unconnected. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, because I will impute all kinds of motives to streaming companies these days. But you know, there's a certain uh, streaming company that had rebranded and kind of needed people to download the new app or go through whatever set of three or four slightly confusing steps were needed to convert from HBO to Max. And I wonder if loading up both Barry and Succession on the same night might have also had a little something to do with just trying to get people reinvolved with this kind of stupid-looking rebrand. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if if the the tail sort of wagged the dog there, which is, which is to say, um, you are going to have these big series finales around the end of May, and you know it would make a lot of sense if that ended up driving the decision that like the timeline on Max's uh, just beautifully executed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my, my favorite aspect of which I think was that, you know, we all have these apps on all of our streaming devices now, and it's not like your old HBO Max app just seamlessly changed into a blue Max yeah. app. Like you just opened HBO Max and it was like, does not work anymore. Right. There was like some some <laughs> assembly re- some assembly required to do this rebrand on the user's part. Not times millions of people, yeah. yes. And the, just flawless. And in many flawless. cases, the player, hey, Casey Boys, the player still doesn't really work as well as other players. Um, but, um, but be that as it may, I mean, I think yeah. there's also a way in which at least two of these shows, uh, as I said, Succession and Ted Lasso, they kind of transcended the normal level of cultural conversation uh, about a streaming show, even a high prestige streaming show. The New York Times, I believe, ran something like 11 stories in the space of a week, including your page oneer and including like a quiz and a conspiracy theory related to an obscure baseball player who had basically the same last name as Tom Wamsgam. I mean, you don't see it. This is all about Succession. I should have said that. But you don't really see that, you know, for a typical series when it's heading out to pasture. Um, Which is, you know, partly because uh, it is a show that, you know, it's not a massive hit uh, compared with some other high profile series finales of the past, right? Mm -hmm. Like that did not get MASH finale numbers. (laughs) It did not get even Game of Thrones finale numbers, but comparably to something like Game of Thrones, um, it did have an audience with an intense depth of interest in it that, you know, number one, I, I would almost compare it to something like Mad Men several mm. years ago in that, you know, it was a show that its writing and its performance and its construction kind of let it lend itself to a lot of takes and analysis and, and you know, deep reads. Uh, and, you know, people rewarded that uh in 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 the way that you know you wouldn't necessarily for a lot of tv shows that and there's nothing wrong with this by the way to quote seinfeld but you know a lot of tv shows have more viewers but they're not as intense viewerships you know you watch like you know a cop procedural so that you can watch it for an hour and then forget about it after you've watched it uh so so yeah did we go a little nuts covering succession, uh, you know, collectively the media? I would say that's true, but it, it wasn't because nobody's reading the pieces. You know, I think that the fan base is very was very into those those deep dives. 
Yeah, no, there's definitely a kind of a tell me more thing that's going on. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about succession in the second segment. But there's also, in the case of Ted Lasso, there's a kind of transcended, I think, in a slightly different way. Um, yes, there were a lot of in jokes, and there's a lot of people digging around for Easter eggs, and you know, it's yeah. you, you know, if you know that Jason Sudeikis's mother was a travel agent, you get a certain joke that Roy Kent said and stuff like that. But and, and I think we we don't know, James, how many houses have pieces of construction paper with the word believe written on it, <laughs> taped over a door. I can tell you that there is one in my house. Um, but there's sort of the, there was a way in which. Lasso, in a way, was providing people with the opposite of what Succession was providing, too. There's sort of a way in which, they, you know, there was this kind of almost 1950s-style American goodness that we don't really see very much in a way that appeals to the cognoscenti. Um, yes. Uh, and by the way, to your, your earlier point, I only wish that Jason Sudeikis's travel agent mother could have, you know, clued him into the unlikelihood of there being direct flights between London and Kansas City. <laughs> uh, you know, but but that little that little quibble aside, yeah, I think like Succession, it was a show that spoke to its time uh very much and it, sort of from the opposite direction. You know, Succession was very caustic and satiric. Uh Ted Lasso, while not being, you know, I think, you know, simple uh, you know, was um, much more warm and sincere. You know, I've 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 talked about the shows before as kind of you know representing the two opposite poles of like irony versus sincerity in television. Mm-hmm. Like you know, an ironic standpoint being where the the way the characters see themselves is not the way that you're meant to see them. You know, like on Arrested Development. Or, you know, the the office or something like that. Whereas on, you know, on Ted Lasso, you know, Ted Lasso is a good person. The show Ted Lasso understands that he's a good person. Even the characters who don't like Ted Lasso on Ted Lasso realize and believe that that he's he's a nice guy. And in the same way that, you know, Succession sort of spoke to uh, you know, both, you know, people's feelings about the rich and wealth inequality and, and power uh, over over time and toward the end of it, you know, the divisions in America. I think Ted Lasso kind of did in an opposite direction. You know, it was sort of speaking for the power of sincerity and positivity in what is often a, a very negative time. And so, you know, it kind of got that zeitgeisty attention from the opposite direction. Yeah. And this is something that came up on my show yesterday, but um, and something that I just had started to think about, although I'm sure there are 20 articles about it that I could have read. And that is Ted Lasso also has, I think, not necessarily kind of a subversive vision of American man and British manhood, but certainly, you know, one, you see these athletes who, you know, have this almost connoisseurship novel uh, understanding of rom-coms and, you know, know who the three Kates of rom-coms are and don't go out for a night in Amsterdam. They stay in and they watch Sleepless in Seattle and cry. And that spreads out, too. And, and I think, you know, a lot of, you know, Seinfeld's motto, according to Larry David, was no hugging, no learning. And, and Ted Lasso is kind of the opposite. People are kind of learning all the time on it. And even Roy Kent, this kind of you know, almost unsalvageable piece of damaged, you know, ultra manhood starts to become a softer version of himself. And I think that, you know, you would think that that would be 
almost too anodyne for the kind of audience you need to attract on a prestige Apple show. But I feel like all kinds of people kind of set aside their cynicism and kind of bought into that. Um, you know, I will say that for myself, uh, I started Ted Lasso when it premiered, I think, in 2020. Um, didn't entirely get into it and and left it aside for a while. Uh, it, and I remember at, uh, to finish by ending up, I ended up binging and, and finishing the first season uh, not that long after January 6th. You know, and, and it was just it was it was sort of this feeling of, you know, with just all this sort of, you know, aggressive hostility in the air. It was really kind of a a, a, a balm mm-hmm. uh, in that way. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people responded to it, uh, you know, in, in that sense. And, yeah, I think that, you know. I think that its idea of of uplift and sort of complicating the idea of you know what it means to be strong or a man or or a winner in this you know in this context of a sporting event like it's not super new to an extent like something like Friday Night sort of did that um, but the show had its own own take on it and you know kind of made it its its comedic philosophy. Right. I mean, I think, you know, both Arrested Development and Succession are about we never got any love from our father and now we're just horribly damaged. And Ted Lasso is we never got any love from our fathers. And here's what we're going to do about it. We're going to be better people. Uh, And, you know, sometimes that in a a nutshell is kind of what you need. Uh, Let's just quickly segue over. I don't have a lot to say about Mrs. Maisel. I stopped watching it after two seasons. But um, Body, we say it in our household with a slight Chechen accent. Body um, <laughs> is, I mean, one thing interesting thing about about Body and Ted Lasso, you have two Saturday Night Live guys from the kind of late middle period of SNL yep. who have gone on to become auteurs, and auteurs in a very interesting and promising way. I mean, Sudeikis does some pretty amazing stuff in putting together Ted Lasso. You know, Hater is taking probably the bigger risks and has the longer reach, a reach that maybe sometimes uh, exceeds his grasp. But you can't help but be pretty excited. I would assume you in particular in your job, kind of excited about these two unexpected arrivals on the on the auteur scene. And an interesting thing about, you know, Barry is that I would argue that Bill Hader ended up being even more accomplished as a director in it than he was an actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to take anything away from his performance. I think it was a performance that is, you know, very well calibrated to what he does well, which, you know, are these sort of like, you know, you know, kind of, you know, off kilter, you know, it's, you know, slightly, you know, you know, broken or or odd characters. And in this case, like really tightly wound, but, also, he directed more and more of the series as it went on, and he managed to make, you know, in, a, in an environment where you have a, a, a lot of action sequences on TV, and that's so the, to make the, 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 the tension and the violence of it genuinely surprising and distinctive uh, in a way that's hard to believe that, that, that it can be anymore, and as, you know, as you say, all, all, the, all the weirder that, you know, this, this came from you know, the guy who played Stefan, you know. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I'm, the other question I think a lot of people have. So I, there was there were a lot of passions 
And yes, among two or three million people as opposed to 84 million people. And we can talk a little bit about that, too, in the second uh, segment. But for people who really care about television, who want to get excited and kind of represent that long tail of people who get excited in you know a smaller group about a certain kind of show, you know, there's a writer's strike, which I know won't really start to affect the pipeline for a little bit of time. But there is this kind of sense, well, here are these four, you know, beloved series that are going off the air kind of all at once. And I don't know. I mean, as as you look at what's coming, is there anything coming along that you can imagine occupying a similar spot in the passions of people? I mean, you know, I think, yeah, I, I think it's likely that there will be. Um, you know, and to an extent, um, you know, some of those shows may already exist. And by that, I mean, you know, something like Succession really, I think, didn't catch on as a phenomenon until as it was getting into its, you know, second season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, its its first season was, was liked. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, anybody saw it necessarily as as a next big thing at that point or or many people did i could certainly see you know something like say uh severance on apple tv mm-hmm. uh first season i absolutely loved uh probably should have gotten more attention at the emmys last year than it did and, and by the way uh, to your to your earlier point is one of those shows whose second season looks like it's going to be held up by by the writer's strike. But you know, I could see it filling up that that gap. You know, the fact is when you, when you have these four shows leaving the air, I'm not you know, they may not all have, you know, a certain thing in common with each other, you know, uh artistically uh or whatever, but they are all shows that, you know, will kind of leave some slots open in the Emmys uh in in coming years and therefore you know sort of like leave a vacuum for you know shows to fill in the cultural conversation but you know i i also feel like you know as a tv critic who's been like doing this job for like quite a long time now i've been through several rounds of the like is this the last you know you know great era of big shows that we'll ever see you know and it turned out to be you know after Game of Thrones, there was something else. After Mad Men, there was something else. After The Sopranos, there was something else. Uh, you know, uh, e- eventually, I have to believe creativity and the desire of people to just like wig out on a very involving show <laughs> will out. You know, I, I that is very well put. And I was you know gratified to discover that Sally Draper is now E. Howard Hunt's daughter. So uh, these stories just keep going. Dysfunctional families lead to other dysfunctional families. James Ponowazic is going to stay with us, uh, the chief television critic for The New York Times, for this next segment. We're going to add two panelists. We're going to talk about succession. We'll come back and we'll do that. Second, take your time. You know I'm yours if you remember that you're mine. And when everybody's telling me I have no time, I prove them wrong again. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we're back. You should know, you might know, that that's the now infamous Nicholas Brutel theme to the uh, series Succession. Joining us now, well, first of all, James Ponowazic is still with us, chief television critic for The New York Times. Uh, Sam Hadleman works in music public relations, hosts The Sam Hadleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn, and is known for his very high arches. Uh, they've been talked about. Uh, and Irene Papoulis uh, teaches writing at Trinity College. She's always referred to eyes as face eggs. Uh, they are both with us now. We're going to spend a little time talking about succession, which, you know, for all of the wonders of Ted Lasso, and they are significant. I mean, there's a way in which succession is sui generis, and maybe we can try to figure out how that is or why that is. So, Irene, I, I don't know. You know, m- maybe the way to begin is if you go on social media and you mentioned succession, you will get a lot of enthusiasm, but you will also get people really wrinkling their noses and talking about succession as almost like a piece of bad-tasting food they had to spit out after they started watching it. Um, So I don't know, if you were trying to make the case for succession as something special, something really worth an investment, how would you do that? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, I would start with um, the artistry and the the music itself. The variations on that theme are so incredibly beautiful in so many ways, Um, not to mention the acting, the writing, the filming and everything. But I also feel like for me, the thing is is that there's really a moral, uh, a moral core to the show that is somewhat startling since it's supposedly, I mean, since it is a show about bad people, you know, who are who are bad, we don't identify with them, we can't love them really, even when we even accept maybe when we see their intense pain. Um, But there's a I feel that there's a moral something emerging from it that for me, the end really, really brought together. Um, So that's where I'd start. No, that's actually a lovely place to start. Uh, Sam, I'll ask you basically the same question. I know you like succession. How would you make the case for it to somebody who, who said, well, these are all just bad people. I can't stand them. I won't spend time with them. Isn't it? I don't know. I feel like uh, in the history of like modern TV, we really love analyzing bad people. Um, I think it like gives us a lot more. Like when you think of like the great TV of the last decade, uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, uh, even like going back the wire a little bit farther back, The Sopranos, uh, I think like specifically kind of like HBO, which a lot of the shows I mentioned are from there, really love that exploration of of bad people. And I think what Succession did that was so well was like it was all very original, like completely original IP, a bunch of actors that like you might have known from this or that outside of like Brian Cox and Alan Ruck. But it made something that really like stood by itself. And thinking of the soundtrack, too, it's like those tiny minute details like 
the Jeremy Strong's like almost overarching dedication to his role, how annoying, how annoyed Brian Cox was at the whole thing, like getting into the little tiny lore of the show. Like there's so many different rabbit holes you could fall down. There's not really anything else quite like it. Yes. You, you could feel, find out that those baseball hats that Jeremy Strong's character and Brian Cox's character favored are Loro Piana, and they cost $500. Because, of course, they have to. So, James, yes, in a way, I think the series is a little bit of a Rorschach blot in the sense that you, if you decide to start at a certain place to think about it, it kind of fills up your mind. I mean, I started thinking about it over the last two or three days as primarily a series about pain. You know, there's just the the pain that is just so evident, particularly in that last four or five episode arc. They just agony that the psychic agony that these people are in. You can see it as a series about pain, but you you could make a case that it's a series about money or a series about greed or ambition. Or I mean, there's a way in which you can make it what you want. Well, it's I don't think I'm necessarily the first person to put it this way, but it's a show about inherited wealth and inherited trauma. Uh, Right. And so, you know, it works on two levels. One, you know, is sort of this big picture, uh, you know, social drama slash dark comedy about how the hyper wealthy today are so much more proportionally vastly wealthy than even, you know, the the wealthy of 40 or 50 years ago that you know, they just have the power to, you know, destroy the world around us and basically walk away, you know, unscathed. Um, uh, 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 you know, uh, it, in, in Tom Wamskin's words, like it's 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 like a superpower. You're like a superhero. The law can't touch you. You get to wear a suit, but it's made by Armani, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but it's also, you know, it's also like a very insightful personal drama. And part of that, you know, I think as, as you're getting at is... You know, you have this magnificent monster, Logan Roy, the father who is who is present in most of the show. And uh, I'm assuming I can talk spoilers at this point. I, I think we're yeah, yeah, we're safe. Yeah, so, so he dies early in the final season and people are all surprised that, you know, the show killed him off that that early three episodes in. But I think, you know, part of the part of part of the, the power of the ending is that, like he never really died. You mm. know, he's still there. He's still in their heads. The the damage he did to them is still there. Their need to impress him and to succeed him is still there. And their inability to, you know, work together in any way that's not totally self-destructive, you know, they all inherited that from them too. And the way it plays out is like, there are no crazy twists. You know, there are no like wild out of nowhere deus ex machinas. It's just these damaged people who have this specific damage and they inevitably act the way that that they're going to do. Right. They start trying to inflict physical pain as well as emotional pain on one another. That maybe is one of the bigger surprises of the uh, the yeah. final episode. Irene, I think there's also a way in which succession to me is unusual. In that this, you you could pull out a two or three minute scene, you know, from almost any episode, or even like just a ten second beat in in an episode, and there's it's just a universe inside of it. Uh, and and most of these episodes have a lot of those. Uh, and this fi- final episode, which I think is really regarded by a lot of people, is just sort of an A plus 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 finale. There was one I thought of it as James was talking. There's a moment when these three siblings, who are the kind of the linchpin of, of this whole story, these three Roy siblings, they are suddenly shown a videotape of their father 
their half-brother, who's always considered to be kind of the odd man out, this kind of Zeppo Roy, uh, you know, and then the, the loyal retainers of the family, the people who had these long-running, high-level management jobs that became sort of auxiliary family. And they're having a moment of merriment and intimacy together from which these three prime characters have been excluded and they're they're witnessing it's like the final dagger just to plunge a piece of rusty wire into their hearts you know guess what there was like a whole other side to a lot of these people and you weren't invited and i thought wow in in about 90 seconds they just destroyed me in a whole other way (laughs) yeah i mean and i think you know in a way, as I'm thinking, I, I imagine listening to this conversation and not having seen it at all, I would probably say, oh, yeah, whatever, maybe that would be good. Maybe that would be fun. But the thing that James said about the, the specific damage is really what makes the show so compelling. I would say it's like we know these people. So we're actually with them in their experience. We're with them in their pain. We feel their pain in a way that that I don't feel the pain of most many characters in most television shows and even movies you know and so the specificity of that moment and all the other moments and also the way we get so sucked in the way it's filmed the way that you know it's like a kaleidoscope it keeps going and going it's just you know yeah really beautiful but i think you know it makes me think i I haven't read aristotle's poetics in you know decades but i kind of want to go back to it and read about pity and terror and catharsis and how what we do get out of that, you know, because it's not an intellectual thing. It's not as though, oh, okay, yeah, they're terrible. They have all this money and it's very corrupt and it's very empty. Sure, that's the case. But there's some kind of emotional um, tr- uh, journey that the, that the show takes us on that it's really hard to describe to someone who hasn't seen it. Um, and it and it has to do with how the pain, you know, it's like Tom saying he's a pain sponge. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what he is. He's a pain sponge, yes. you know, and as a way of selling himself, you know, yeah. it's just amazing. That, that scene was my was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Um, and and, Sam, and I just want to transition yeah, over to Sam ahead. for just a second here. because One thing that, yeah. I mean, Irene just kind of got at it, I think. One thing we, not, we might not be really saying is how funny this series is. And it doesn't yeah. seem plausible if you've never watched it and you've heard everything we've said over the last few minutes. But, I mean, I just want to cite one thing. This is, I think, a couple seasons ago maybe there was one of my favorite moments was so Tom Wamsgan who is the husband of one of the three principal siblings and and he has a lot of sort of I don't know Rosencrantz and Guildenstern scenes with this guy his cousin Greg he's the guy who really wants to be part of the nuclear family and isn't uh, and um, but Wamsgan's my fa- one of my favorite moments of the series they run this you know hyper conservative Fox News style network called ATN and they're interviewing a new anchor uh, and, and they they've done a background check on him, or they Googled him, or I don't know what. But they one of the so they're and the guy is super 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 conservative in kind of a scary way. And Wamsgam says, "Now is it true?" He's looking at a file, and he says, "Is it true? You read Mein Kampf twice?" And the guy goes, "Yeah." He's a young guy. He goes, "Yeah." And Tom says, "Were there like Easter eggs that you thought maybe you missed <laughs> the first time around?" Uh, which I, I don't know. I I was on the floor, but it's a very very funny show. Sam is the point I'm making. Yeah. It's- Kind of like, kind of like Mad Men and The Sopranos. It's a, it's a drama that also happened to be the funniest show on TV any week that it was on. Yeah, yeah. Sam, your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say. I think that was kind of like one of the things about the show is how well it excelled at whatever it tried its hand in. Like, even at like the most serious moments, like the following, you know, Logan's passing, you would think that there'd be a moment of reflection, and that that doesn't really happen until like Roman breaks down, but. Like, I think that comes along with like how all the siblings and everyone around them 
processes trauma. Like I, I think Carl said on the plane of the Logan passing episode, he was like, yeah, he's going to be heavily delayed. And that killed me. I think my fun, I was, I was thinking about this last night too. I think my funniest, like the funniest insult on the show was uh, when they called Tom a corn fed, a corn fed basic from hockey town. I think that was my all time favorite insult on the show. But yeah, it was just, uh, and it, it kind of relates back to like Barry, what you guys were talking about earlier, The Sopranos, Mad Men. I think the best shows are able to kind of juggle really well. And this show had a lot of arms. Yeah. And, you know, James, I think another thing about the show is that there was a sort of uncompromisingness to it that you don't see too often. The Sopranos might be an interesting analog there, but they just did things their own way. Did they have like really cool needle drops the way Ted Lasso? No, not really. They just did their own thing with music. And, and the fact that they shot on film, film and they shot on using cameras that often could only handle 10 minutes of film and would do all these crazy stunts like squirreling extra reels around and like under cushions on the set and stuff so they could get sort of a keep the actors in character for a 27 minute you know essentially one take scene there was sort of a sense that we're going to do this our way and it's not going to look too much like other TV shows that you see and we don't care because we have this idea I would assume as a critic that's something that would really intrigue you it's interesting because you know what they're really doing is like you know there there's yeah there there's there's nothing basically fancy about the show they shoot in some fantastic locations uh you know uh but there's there's not a lot of cgi there's there's not a lot of you know uh budget disappearing into uh a, a lot of trickery you know at, at heart the episodes are are sort of being shot like theaters you know they'll they'll often do long takes uh you know they, they'll be you know edited uh together later but you know it's really like shot in a very simple non-busy way uh to you know let the scenes grow from the acting and you know i, I think that that is that is something that is is pretty rare in tv right now just 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 stylistically Right. And I do think, you know, Irene, to my point to you before about this being kind of a series in which small moments are very big, there's also a sense in which, I mean, the casting of this series, going into this series, to Sam's point, I knew who Brian Cox was. Uh, you know, I, I maybe maybe sort of knew who Alan Ruck was, although that Ferris Bueller is not a big movie for me. Um, and but I did know J. Cameron Smith from a series called Rectify, which more people should watch. But um, yeah, you, you know, she's. I mean, she, that's not a big role, Jerry, but like you really know a lot about Jerry by the end of the series because the acting is so good. And, and you know, Irene, they create a fairly small character and then somehow or other make it big for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, she's great. And I it just makes me it circle makes me want to circle back to the idea of morality, because with Jerry, there's some, you know, she knows there. She she sees through so many things. You know, she knows there's something wrong. She knows there's she knows there's something seriously wrong, and we 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 it makes the whole thing makes us feel uncomfortable. She's uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with her, and I I like that I can never watch the show and say, "Wow, wouldn't it be fun to be one of those people?" I mean, like <laughs> never, you know. And 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 I like that about the. Show. I like how it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me think about. What do you know? What is morality? What do what really does make somebody live a good life? And what is it? And and it and it and it's not this, even though this is fascinating at the same time. And this is fascinating in its in its not being that it's not being something aspirational. 
um, even though they get to, you know, fly, you know, you want to go somewhere, just get on a plane, whatever, you know, but it, it doesn't feel, it never feels that way. You, know, so. you, you just want to eat some of those really big shrimp and then dive off the boat and get away from them. So we have to take sure. a little break here, uh, but say, thank you so much to James Ponawasi. I'm honored to have the chief television critic for the New York Times with us. Uh, Irene Papoulis and Sam Haddleman will be back as we begin to discuss White House plumbers with the great Jim Chapdelaine after this. We are coming back now. This is an unusually constructed dose. We're going to, instead of doing some uh, recommendations and endorsements, talk about uh, yet another TV um, epic, sort of. Uh, but before that, i got to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She is our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is the producer of The Nose. And joining us now uh, from the bullpen, uh, the rangy speedball throwing. Are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm left-handed. You're left-handed. You, know, you never know when you need a left-handed. Yeah, you know, I'm left-handed, too. And I, uh, how did I miss that? Emmy-winning uh, musician, patient advocate uh, for people with rare cancers. And I saw him and St. John Hunt throwing something off the Tallahatchie Bridge. James Chapdelaine is with us. Samuel Haddleman is the guy who actually did drink the whiskey at the Watergate Hotel. He works in <laughs> music public relations and hosts the Sam Haddleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. And lastly... She she was on the last train out of China in '49 with a 25 strapped to her thigh. Irene Papula Street teaches writing <laughs> at Trinity College. So yes, we're going to talk about White House plumbers. Um, and I, it's first of all, we, this is one of the series that kind of comes along in the wake of some of the prestige television we just talked about. Uh, probably not going to make a comparable splash, but there is some crossover from Succession and from Veep. Frank Rich is an executive producer of Succession and is an executive producer of this. Uh, it is the actual story of G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt uh, and their role in orchestrating the Watergate burglary. And so, Jim, uh, since we've been holding you in reserve here, I'm going to have you get us started. This is something that is kind of – Jim and I are essentially the same age. I think we're about three or four months apart. So um, this is something that's in our memories and it's weird for me seeing it, you know, done by Woody Harrelson and Jason Theroux. Uh, well, I agree. It's sort of funny to see like history imagined in front of you or reimagined. Um, although I think it's pretty accurate, even though it's a little slapsticky. Um, I don't remember at the time I was in high school uh, driving around uh, doing terrible things in a little town. So I don't remember a lot of the details. I had forgotten about uh, uh, Howard Hunt's wife dying in a, plane accident um a lot of the peripheral things i had forgotten about them breaking into uh daniel ellsberg's psychiatrist's office to trigger a lot of this stuff um and i had forgotten how horrible these people are and yet this series makes me like them in the way that i like steve buscemi in the death of stalin and so they take this sort of black chapter of american history and, and something that's probably going on right now who knows and these bumblers 
somehow end up taking down the the presidency with their conspiracy theory that it turns out to actually be true. I love the slapstick part of it, um, even though I was put off by that initially. And Justin Thoreau, people will think he's overacting if you don't have context. Just go watch Gordon Liddy on YouTube for five minutes, and you'll see that, if anything, Justin Thoreau is underacting. Although I think it could be argued that at a certain point, G. Gordon Liddy started playing G. Gordon Liddy, too. So um, No doubt. There's a little no president. Doubt. But that was post. So, right. that, so, was that, was there. that was the second act, yes. So um, here we go. Let's hear a little clip so you can uh, get a sense of this whole thing. Uh, you'll hear Woody Harrelson as E. Howard Hunt. Yul Vasquez as Bernard Barker. Tony Plana as Eugenio Martinez. These are the burglars. Uh, Justin Theroux as G. Gordon Liddy and Alex, Alexis Valdez as Felipe de Diego. Here we go. Macho. What happened? We had a little trouble with the lock on the filing cabinet. It broke. So we had to improvise. Hey! You know, the whole point of the operation, Macho was for Fielding to never know that we were there. George told us to break the window. I didn't... Jesus, Gordon. Who's Gordon? You tore the place apart. Why is all this on the floor? Oh, tranquilo, tranquilo. We come up with a plan. We made a mess. Threw some pills around to make it seem like junkies were looking for drugs. Where'd you get the pills? We broke into a doctor's office, <laughs> down the hall. May I ask a question? I think I would only... What kind of a drug addict, A, brings his own drugs to a crime scene, and B, scatters them about the floor and leaves them behind? That's a fair point. That's a fair point. So Irene, Jim, Irene, Jim said slapstick, and I mean, I you know, I think the more you watch it, and the more you kind of reach back, and I've got my Gary Graff uh, history of Watergate beside me while I'm watching it, uh, you realize the slapstick was there all the time. The difficulty, the, the the bigger jump, is going to be to make some of these characters seem plausibly human. Yes, exactly. I mean, I I also was very put off at the beginning, and part of it was because it happened fast, and I was sort of. Uh, I was like, wait a minute. I didn't have my Watergate histories right next to me, though. I did have a historian sitting next to me who was helping me out with with some of the facts. But I just felt like, wow, I mean, they're just are they just taking this story and making it into a wacky uh, version of it? And and it was only as I got into it more that I realized, no, they actually did do these wacky things in ways that didn't necessarily. Why did you know they maybe they did they even need to, you know, they didn't need to infiltrate the Democratic um uh, you know, office. And, and so the slapstick suddenly becomes um, much more truthful than I, than I had any idea. And it goes fast, but it goes really quickly at first. But then once you get to the third episode or so, it sort of slows down. And even in that clip, which I think was from an earlier um, episode, right, maybe the first or second, um, the slowness with which um, Theroux talks as, as Howard Hunt is so great, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. But you're doing you're doing good thinking out loud. So yeah, and so Sam, from a younger person's perspective, um, I don't know how much Watergate sort of gets in anybody's heads anymore. We lived alongside of it. Uh, We were teenagers, but kind of you couldn't miss it. Um, So I'm just sort of wondering how any of this lands with you. 
Um, I actually, in my typical fashion, I really like All the President's Men. Um, it was like a movie I really liked in college. And then The Post um, with like Meryl Streep. I also really liked that movie about the Pentagon Papers. So like, I think my expectation for like Watergate related television movie, etc. was kind of high. And this just like wasn't really it. You know, I was like talking about juggling earlier. It just felt like this one had too many balls in the air. Like they tried to make it funny. It wasn't that funny. They tried to like make it almost like an Ocean's Eleven who's done it. Uh, also kind of doing that like big short, you know, uh, historical bio thing where they try to, as Irene said, kind of like slapstick history, even though it seems like the facts are still as ridiculous as they were depicted on screen. Um, I, I didn't think it was bad. I mean, anything with Woody Harrelson in it is going to be a cheat code for me, even though he had that like funny accent, which I, I, I is that how the guy talks? What what Harrelson did specifically, um, I happen to know just from listening to a little bit of the official accompanying podcast, uh, is he he wanted to get a gravelly sound to his voice and he kind of uh, studied George C. Scott doing Patton uh, in order to get that kind of rumble in his voice that, that he's using. And, you know, Jim, one thing we should say is that I don't think there are many historical events, uh, at least in American history, that are in as well documented. I mean, everybody wrote a book. Every freaking person wrote a book. There's a moment in the series where G. Gordon Liddy, Justin Theroux says, there's no way he's ever writing a book. And we're sitting there thinking, no, you wound up writing one of the most popular <laughs> books. Right. You wrote a book right. that made you a lot of money. So that's not true. But I mean, everybody wrote a book and then everybody wrote books about books. And this series is to some degree or other based on a book, but either by Eagle Bud Crow or I think maybe his son or something. Bud Crow, who's a minor water... Watergate figure felt that the Watergate, um, the White House plumber story, the Watergate break-in story was never told properly. But there's just so much to work from that, you know, this is, it's sort of unusual that way. You know, I guess maybe again, it's sort of a Rorschach block, right? Block. You can look at well, it and see what you want. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I particularly like that we're seeing this story from the point of view of these two characters. Um, and I think Howard Hunt afterwards sort of disappears into obscurity, basically. And Gordon Liddy gets a talk show, um, even though he's sort of a Nazi. It's, I mean, the whole thing is nuts, right? It's a nuts ocean. So while you're walking, watching it, you think, like, that's not true. Well, that can't be true. And lo and behold, it's true. Most of everything in there is true. And it, I, I guess it's probably not as slapstick as we think it is, because that's the way they talked and that's the way they behaved. And they did do all these things. It's, yeah, I mean, there's a scene so, where, where Liddy insists on shooting these lights, uh, a light out that's like over an entrance. That happened. He climbed up on another guy's shoulders. Hand, Go ahead. Yeah, He frequently yeah. held his hand over the, oh, yeah. over a candle right. uh, or and ate a rat and tried to get struck by lightning. <laughs> um, and you know, so, I mean, Go ahead, Irene. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, I guess... All right, so, do, Jim, did you finish your thought? Um, I, okay. I, I yeah, never so, finished my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This thought is still going right so, now. <laughs> I mean, it makes, it, I think it's interesting, you know, like Succession also had an official podcast, which I listened to a lot of, and it was like, oh, that's really interesting. It's nice to hear the characters, but in no way did the podcast help me watch the show. I felt like the show did what it needed to do, the show of Succession. Whereas this show, in contrast, the White House Plumbers uh, is the podcast is completely helps you watch it 
It helped me see it. It helped me see what was going on. It helped me make sense of it. It helped me understand something about the period. And so I think it's interesting to think about, you know, how limited we are just by just watching the show alone. If I had just watched the first two episodes and didn't have to watch more, I would have said, yeah, whatever. It's, no, you know, not really interested. But I'm so glad I watched the rest. and I'm so glad I, I listened to the podcast because I feel like I understand something now about that period. And it's interesting to think about it in relation to our period of time right now and how people go about how governments go about trying to trying to trying to you know, have their way with the, with the world. Yes. And Jim, just to go back to you for a second, and your thought is probably still going anyway, but I just wanted to say, he didn't, Liddy didn't just get a talk show. He'd be like on Password with Betty White. I mean, <laughs> right. He, I mean, <laughs> he was on Letterman. What, what was Letterman? I mean, he would be on Letterman just, you know, exchanging quips. Right. This horrible, dangerous uh, Nazi guy. He was kind of sanitized into sort of a generalized celebrity because he somehow or other... I think at some point got the joke about himself or or somebody told him to to, to get the joke. So, um, Sam, I don't know. I don't know how far you got into this. To me, episode four is the thing where the whole thing starts to click in a really big way. And a lot of it is due to Lena Headey. I think that's how you say her last name, who was Cersei famously in Game of Thrones. I don't know. Were, were there any acting performances that stood out for you, Sam? Uh yeah, that was the thing is that the casting was so good. I mean, th- these are like a lot of actors who I check for. And Honestly, like the, the the first couple episodes, the kids is kind of what stuck out to me. I kind of thought that was like the most interesting part of the show is that like, here's this hardo patriot. I eat Wheaties for breakfast, you know, guy who works for the FBI and his kids like smoking pot at the country club and screaming at people like that dynamic at his household. And then what he does in real life, I thought that was kind of like what drew me in. Right. There's a kind of claustrophobia to the E. Howard Hunt uh, household. I quickly wanted to say Lena Headey plays uh, Dorothy Hunt, uh, the wife of E. Howard Hunt. And her performance to me is the thing that really makes this series. Hey, we're almost out of time. Jim, I know there's gigs coming up at the Kate. Tell us when you and Big Al are coming to Old Saybrook. Uh, we'll be there for three nights. It's the first time that the Kate has ever had anyone for three nights in a row. So I don't know if that says anything about the Kate or are says you, something about us. Are you prepared to tell the Watergate committee which three nights those are? I, I, well, Al was involved in the <laughs> initial break-in, and I think he's about to tell all. All right. So uh, June June 30th, uh, July 1st and 2nd. Okay, and really quickly, next week I'm off, and uh, so Sean Murray is coming in to guest host The Nose and talking about Nintendo's crazy good year involving Super Mario Brothers and the new Zelda game. I wonder whether they thought I couldn't host that episode. All right, we got to go. Thanks to these wonderful panelists, and enjoy your weekend. about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.